Wonderful. Good. Why don't we take our Bibles today, open up to 1 Corinthians chapter 12. 1 Corinthians chapter 12, please. We're going to be reading verses 12 and 13 today. Verses 12 and 13. Well, hear now the Word of God. Let's read together. For even as the body is one and yet has many members, and all the members of the body, though they are many, are one body, so also is Christ. For by one Spirit we were all baptized into one body, whether Jews or Greeks, whether slaves or free, And we were all made to drink of one Spirit. Let's pray together. Heavenly Father, we come before You now thanking You so much and desiring so much to continue our worship now as we labor over Your Word. And as Your Word is preached, Lord, we pray that by the power of Your Spirit that it would have its transforming work in our lives, that we would be brought into greater and greater conformity to Your Word to your law, even as your church, that we would grow up, as Paul says, into the head who is Christ, that we might bear his likeness, that we may resemble his maturity, his all of his glory and graces, Lord, that they would be displayed in the body, the church, your church. And so we pray, O God, that you would give us a heart not only to hear Your Word, but to obey Your Word, to apply Your Word, even as we feast upon it, Lord. Thank You for such days. Thank You that we are living in times of fullness, where we have Your Word in our midst, where we have the capacity to worship freely according to our conscience, that we can receive of the means of grace the Lord's Supper and Your Word as it is preached. Lord, we pray that You would Build us up now and have our hearts to be filled with hope and expectancy as we look to you now in this time. In Jesus' name, amen. You may be seated. Well, we're continuing our sermon series uh, regarding the church, taking a little bit of a break from the the gospel of Isaiah, (laughs) the book of Isaiah, and uh, we are going to be basically uh, taking the entire month of October to look at couple different things, Uh, the doctrine of the church, a couple things emphasizing the doctrine of the church is, as we looked at last week, Lord willing, we uh, covered uh, a lot of territory there that needed to be covered in terms of preaching and what preaching is all about and what the ministry of a preacher is and what the goal of preaching is about. And today, we're going to be looking at membership, and next week, Lord willing, we're going to be covering the one another's of Scripture, which are very practical, but things that we haven't talked about here in our church for quite some time, and so each one of these really needed to be uh, covered. And then um, uh, uh, after next week, uh, uh, Pastor Lynn will be preaching on the same theme of the church. We decided to extend it to one more sermon on the church, and then it is the Reformation Sunday in our church, and I will be preaching a special, especially Reformed sermon that Sunday. <laughs> it will be a reform, Reformation Sunday. So looking forward to some great and glorious things. Well, today before us, uh, we have uh, the subject of membership. 
And uh, membership, of course, is quite important to a church. You really don't have a church without membership. I don't know how many of you all have been part of a church that didn't have membership. I have. I've been in, I was kind of reared, at least in my Christian walk, I was kind of reared in the Calvary Chapel movement. Calvary Chapel uh, does not believe in church membership. Matter of fact, they're quite anti-church membership. They believe church membership, uh, at least what was presented to me uh, through my pastors and through the preaching at Calvary Chapel. Uh, I don't want to pick on Calvary Chapel, but I just got to give you the context of, you know, they would say that church membership is uh, not taught in the Bible. Church membership is legalistic. Church membership is overbearing. It's over the top. It's heavy handed, you know, things like that. It doesn't flow out of your heart. It's sort of, you know, mandated upon you. And this is not really even a sermon uh, to try to prove the case for church membership. Uh, You wouldn't be a member of our church if you didn't believe in church membership, I suppose. So I don't think uh, you need church membership to be proven to you. But this is is more of a sermon uh, to try to magnify the nature of membership, what it's like, what it's for, what God is doing Uh, in the context of the membership of the church. Too many people today actually have a low view of their membership of the church, and as a matter of fact, they don't take it very serious, and that's exactly what we want to uh, avoid. We want to avoid ever thinking of the church in lesser terms than what Scripture gives us here. I mean, let's face it, church membership today is really necessary because of the church and where it is contextually in our culture today. As, as we look out into the church culture today, there is so much confusion as to what is the church? Why do I need to be a member? What is membership all about? What is my role in the church? You think about Christians that, have, that struggle to join a church, to commit to the church, to serve in the church. And so the whole identity of a church member oftentimes can be lost Add to this the complexity of what the church is. You think of all the doctrinal infighting of the church, the struggle for what the church is to be and the mission of the church. And sometimes you're kind of left scratching your head. Well, what kind of church do I join? Where do I belong? Where do I go? Where do I fit in? Those kind of questions. It, it can be quite dizzying, as a matter of fact. I mean, I meet people all the time that are looking for a church, and they come to a to our church because, you know, they're sampling our church. And so they just want to know if this is where God has them, and that's fine. But too many Christians too often are always in sort of that transitionary mode. They're either leaving a church, trying to join a church, they don't know what church to go to. There's just, uh, the the confusion is abundant. But I'm sorry, uh, I don't think a Christian should be looking for a church for too long. I mean, if you're looking for a church for a year, you can't find a church in a year to join. Something is wrong there. And I think we need to examine, well, what does God intend for the church to be? If you look at this passage of Scripture, this kind of comes smack dab in the middle of a major passage on membership. Now, that is even in a broader context, not just of church membership, but really church order. And that is chapter 12 all the way to chapter 14. And uh, there's really a couple aspects about that church order. First of all, the apostle Paul, really, if you go to chapter 11, even then he tells you how to take the Lord's Supper. He talks about roles, men and women in the church. And then in chapter 12, he begins to launch out into a huge 
a, a sort of a dissertation, if you would, on spiritual gifts. Now, we know the context of chapters 12 to 14. This is the Apostle Paul trying to correct a church, Corinth, that has veered off the path and has gone into abusing spiritual gifts, no longer functioning in a healthy way in terms of spiritual gifts. But as the context uh, is well known, they had begun to magnify certain aspects of the church, and even more precisely, they had been uh, magnifying certain gifts in the church and specifically dealing with the uh, gift of tongues. And so uh, the church of Corinth came to the conclusion that the most exciting spiritual gift of all is the gift of tongues, and therefore let's make that the most prominent part of the whole church. And so the apostle Paul wrote uh, to try to correct all of that. But in the context of all of that, he, he grounds his entire argument on the nature of the body of Christ. Again, the metaphor is very simple. We can say this passage here, verses 12 and 13, is really giving us three different things. Number one, the metaphor of the body. Number two, the role of the Spirit. And then last of all, the diversity of the church. And number one, the Christ-centered metaphor of the body. See, membership changes the minute you understand what the church is. The church is not just a group of religious people. It's not just a clique of spiritual people. It's not just a gathering of Christians that come together uh, because they have a lot of things in common or they want to network with one another. That's not what it is. I mean, I know the church has been turned into a lot of that. The church has been turned into everything. I mean, to everything from a, a, a network of like-minded individuals uh, driven by business or social class or whatever, all the way to, you know, the, the church becomes like a dating service. Uh, but that's not what the church is. I mean, I hope you do find, find your spouse in the church. <laughs> that would be great. But some people look at the church with the wrong motive, because they don't understand that the church is primarily the body of Jesus Christ. And he takes it very seriously. Now turn with me, if you would, to your, in your Bibles to the book of Acts. Acts chapter 9, quickly, just to see how important the body of Christ is. Um, Jesus, when he confronted a Christian killer by the name of Saul of Tarsus, you remember what he said to him as he knocked him off his horse on the way to Jerusalem to arrest Christians, prosecute them, and put them to death. He says, in Acts chapter 9, beginning in verse 5, he says, Who are you, Lord? And he said, I am Jesus, whom you are persecuting. And so, in the economy of Christ, in the mind of Jesus... In order, when you persecute the church of God, you, the way he interprets that is you are persecuting me. You are persecuting Christ. Turn over to another passage, Colossians, the ones I can think of in the moment, but Colossians chapter 1, for example. Here's another one. Now that lends to the idea of Christ taking it personal in terms of what you do to the body of Christ, seeing the two as inextricable, inseparable from one another. Christ and His body, they go together. And they go together for every single one of us too. Uh, the, the, the people in Jerusalem that were suffering the persecution of Saul of Tars Tarsus, they could 
finish the sentence that Jesus began when Jesus says, why are you persecuting me? As saying, the church could then in turn say, when you persecute me, you are persecuting Christ. That's exactly what Paul says here. Colossians, are you there? Colossians 1, chapter, chapter 1, verse 24. Look at what he says here. He says, now I rejoice in my sufferings for your sake. Same context. Persecution. Just a little slight difference. Paul went from the persecutor to the persecuted. <laughs> Praise God, right? And he says, and he says, in my flesh, I do my share on behalf of his body, which is the church, filling up what is lacking in Christ's afflictions. What a provocative, what a tremendous statement by the Apostle Paul there. What he's basically saying is this, brothers and sisters, is that Christians more persecuted today than ever before on planet earth. I hope you understand that. I hope you awaken to that. I hope that you will read Voice of the Martyrs. I hope that you will read uh, magazines on persecution. I hope that you will read missions agencies. I hope that you will understand what that's all about. You need that. I need that. We need to be awakened to that. We need to pray for the church that is in chains um, to realize that God has ordained a certain amount of suffering and persecution on behalf of His body, which is the church. And so that every time a Christian suffers, in a sense, like the Apostle Paul, he is filling up the measure of suffering that the body of Jesus Christ will undergo on planet Earth right before it's over. And the last Christian will suffer. And the last martyr will be martyred. And then the prayers of the saints in Revelation will be answered when they cry out to God beneath the altar, How long, O Lord, before you avenge our blood? He will avenge it. But not until all the persecution is done. There you see, then, brothers and sisters, that church is personal. Uh, we are part of the body of Jesus Christ. This sermon could not have been preached on a better Lord's Day. Lord's Supper, we just partook of the elements. We just did something that is very special as a corporate body to realize that the, the means of grace, the, the sacraments of the church, the discipline of the church, participating in the church, serving in the church, giving, leading, teaching, singing, this is for all of us, not just some of us. Now, you often get the uh, you know, you often get people that talk about the 80-20 split in the church, right? You got 20% of the church doing everything in the church, and 80% of the church is just kind of sitting around. Well, thankfully, that's not the reality here in our church. I, I'm really serious. I'm really uh, uh, honest and thankful about that, that our church is filled with people that want to serve, and they want to be involved, and they want to press in. And sadly, today, too many people think that going to church and being a part of a church is just kind of approaching it from a very minimalistic sort of point of view that as long as you kind of scurry into the service, you hear a little preaching, maybe put a little money in the box, that you've done your duty before God. And uh, in fact, you haven't. The Apostle Paul, with this passage of Scripture, eliminates such superficial, Western, consumer-driven, self-absorbed, and incidental approaches to church. I say Western because it's part of the Western church, this sort of seeker-sensitive, man-centered, consumer-driven mentality that has 
plagued the church world over now. Paul uses the context of spiritual gifts, therefore, the abuse of spiritual gifts, as the occasion to situate the church in its proper spiritual, redemptive, and selfless context as being part of the body of Christ. The metaphor is really basic. Look at what he says again in verse 12. The key in verse 12, if you go back there to Corinthians, the key in verse 12 is in the phrase that Paul uses at the very end of the verse. He says, so also is Christ. You actually get the interpretation of the passage once you get to verse 27. Look down at verse 27. He makes the analogy very clear. Just like there is a a body and it's got many members, right? And yet it is one body. And then he says in verse 12, so also is Christ. But notice what he says. Now you are Christ's body and individually members of it. If you can adopt that, if you can embrace that, It would change everything for you. It would change everything for you. Because what it means is that when you come to church, if you look at yourself as the hand, the foot, the eye, the ear, the toe, whatever, uh, you'll realize that when the body doesn't have you, and when the body's not functioning well without you, it's like a body that, you know, you cut off. You ever hurt your toe, your finger, your nail? It's just like the insignificant part of your body, but man, it can be detrimental. Right? Utterly detrimental. Um, so many metaphors, so many examples and analogies I could use there, but you know how it is. The, 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 the metaphor is almost childlike. It's so simple, and yet we can't get it. We can't grasp it, and we need to be constantly reminded of this. And therefore, when we look at ourselves as part of this, we understand what the greater emphasis in the church is. See, being part of a church, brothers and sisters, puts us on a spiritual plane where by virtue of our participation in the church, we've been changed, we've been altered, our lives are different. By, by the fact that you've come in here today, by the fact that you have joined a local church, you are saying something about your life. You're saying that you have been completely, utterly transformed. You are a new creation. You are a new person. 1 Corinthians chapter 6, verses 14, all the way to chapter 7, verse 1, tells us, 1 Corinthians 6, 14, beginning there, that we've been altered. We've been changed. The Bible calls it being set apart. We've been pulled out, called out, separated from the world. And, matter of fact, Paul even goes on to say there, to separate yourself from the world. I, I like that. Because the church today, if we're honest, we are so, what's a church so obs- uh, obsessed with? We're, we're obsessed with contextualizing with the world. We're obsessed with, with trying to, you know, sort of fit in with the world, with mesh with the world, sort of blend in, look like, sound like, talk like, entertain ourselves like, dress like, right? Uh, 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 talk politically like, the rest of the world. We're trying to, we're bending over backwards, trying to be relatable to the church so that the, ch- or the world, so that the church can be understood by the world. Brothers and sisters, don't you understand the meaning of being in the church is that we are different. We are ostracized from the world. We are different than the world. We're nothing like the world. It's, it's a light and darkness. And therefore, I fear when we have so much in common with the world that the world can no longer even distinguish anymore between what's going on 
between the church and the world. That's, that's a problem. When the world no longer scratches its head in wonder at the oddity and the strange nature of the church, something is wrong. Something is wrong. Being part of the church means our identity has been forever altered. The purpose of our life has been forever reoriented around the glory of God. And now, everything in our lives, every point of contact with the world in this life has changed. Our vocation, our families, our money, our hobbies, our politics, everything has been changed. Paul taught taught the Corinthians this exact thing. See, he just got done saying in this exact letter, 1 Corinthians chapter 6 verse 19, he just got telling them, you are no longer your own. You have been bought with a price. You've been purchased. And being part or being a member of the body of Christ is saying exactly that. I don't belong to myself anymore. I don't belong myself anymore. Therefore, I belong to Him. And when we join a church, we emphasize our separation from the world and our union with Christ. But in order to understand this union, go back to see the dynamic of the Spirit. Verse 13. For by one Spirit, we were all baptized into one body, and then jump down, Jews, Greeks, slaves, free, and we were all made to drink of one Spirit. That is so glorious. And so here, the metaphor of salvation, or really the doctrine of salvation, the concept of union with Christ, this mystical spiritual union that we have with Jesus Christ is presented as one coin with two sides. On the one hand, uh, the Spirit, as it were, is the subject of our baptism. On the other hand, the Spirit is the object of the believer's internalizing of salvation. And so, no, and so the very first thing here is that the Spirit is the agent baptizing us into the body of Christ. Now this is not bring a little correction here guys. It's much of the church, much of the church, millions and millions of Christians in the church have misinterpreted this passage right here to 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 think that what the apostle Paul is talking about here is the the Pentecostal doctrine of the baptism of the Holy Spirit, which is not what Paul is teaching here. This is simply uh, reiterating what it means to be in union with Christ. And so it is salvific. It is, it is speaking about our conversion. It is speaking about us being joined to Jesus Christ by faith, through salvation. It is not talking about the consequent experiences of the Spirit. You see what I'm saying? And this uh, doctrine, actually, the baptism of the Holy Spirit doctrine, has actually been the catalyst for so much confusion in the world. I mean, when I was taught this doctrine initially, I was taught that there were basically two kinds of Christians. There were spirit-filled Christians, (laughs) and then there were just merely saved Christians. And that you were not spirit-filled until you had undergone the baptism of the Holy Spirit. And so that immediately created like a two-tier Christianity. Down here, we're just the saved. That's it. You just saved. That's all. You're just poor you. You know, you have every spiritual blessing in the heavenly places in Christ Jesus, who is your life. 
you are complete in him. <laughs> Colossians chapter 3, verse 10, or chapter 2, verse 10, right? You're complete in Christ. He is the head of all principalities and powers, but you're, you're just down there. You need to get is up here where you get the baptism of the Holy Spirit and you get these, uh, you know, you get these supernatural effusions of the Spirit. You get the external manifestations of the Spirit. And uh, they, they, what they've done is they've used that as an occasion to teach that everything in 1 Corinthians 12 to 14, therefore, is almost like an exposition of the baptism of the Holy Spirit, which is totally, totally wrong. That's not my focus today. But i got to point that out. At the other hand, uh, he's not just the subject of salvation. He is also the object of salvation. This is the believer drinking in the Spirit, which is just a metaphorical way of saying we receive the Spirit. We internalize the Spirit. We are filled with the Spirit through salvation. And this is a Spirit-wrought work. And what is the work? Well, ultimately the work, if we take it in the context, the work of the Spirit here is to unite the body of Christ. One body, many members, as a work of the Spirit who both baptizes us into the body of Christ and of which we all, just like we all, if you are a member, if you are saved, if you are a Christian, we all just drink of the cup of the new covenant in the same way we drink of the Spirit of God and internalize for ourselves eternal life, as it were. Drink in. It's, the same thing. it's almost like here, you're drinking the Spirit, just as Jesus said, unless you eat my flesh and drink my blood, you have no part of me. What's he saying there? Is he, Jesus promoting cannibalism? Of course not. These are metaphors of faith. Metaphors of faith. And because of this Spirit forged unity, brothers and sisters, here's the logic. All division, all factionalism, all selfishness, all misplaced pride is out of step with the Spirit. Turn with me to the chapter 3 of this letter, chapter 3, just to see this. Because Paul needs to teach on these issues here, probably reminding them, he probably is already preach. He's, he's already taught them about these things, and now he's reminding us, cementing these realities in their mind. But look what happens when they don't live in the reality of this, when they're not operating on the plane of the Spirit that puts every last believer on the same spiritual level, okay? There is no higher Christianity. There's no higher forms. There is no, you need to obtain to a new spiritual level, okay? <laughs> Uh, there is one level, Christ. And once you're in Him, you've got everything that you need for life and godliness. You've got everything. You've got every spiritual blessing. You've been equipped by Christ Himself. He dwells in you. You've got it all. All sufficient Christ dwelling in your heart. But when that's not missing, what happens? Look at chapter 3, verse 1. I, brethren, could not speak to you as spiritual men, Oh, the irony of that statement. The very thing they're claiming to be is spiritual men and women. And he says, I can't speak to you as spiritual men and women. Why? Because in the midst of all your spirituality, he says, you, you are, uh, you're acting as men of the flesh, he says, but as men, excuse me, I can't speak to you as spiritual men, but as men of the flesh, flesh there being pejorative, 
meaning I'm speaking to you as sinful people, carnal people, as to infants in Christ. Forget about being a man, being grown up. I have to talk to you like you're a babe. I gave you milk to drink, solid food, for you were not yet able to receive it. Indeed, even now you are not able, for you are still fleshly. That's the NASB, probably carnal, better term, but you get the point. Why are they carnal? Since there is jealousy, strife among you. Are you not fleshly? And are you not walking like mere men? For one says, I'm of Paul. Another one says, I'm of Apollos. These are the kinds of cliquish factionalism factions that can be formed when the unity, the spirit-wrought unity of the church is not firmly understood. The context in Corinth, again, is written to deal with the misuse of gifts. And in the argument, Paul bases his call for order and love and unity based on what the Spirit has done at the redemptive level. We could put it like this. All ecclesiology is the attempt to conform to pneumatology. Write that down, underline it, or just get my notes later. All ecclesiology is the attempt to conform to pneumatology. Wow, that's so interesting in light of the context, because these folks were claiming to be spiritual, to be about pneumatology. And yet, because they misunderstood the dynamics of biblical pneumatology, their ecclesiology was out of control. Isn't that remarkable? So then, the outworking of this unity is mainly manifested in the proper use of spiritual gifts in the assembly of the church, but this exact spiritual reality finds expression elsewhere in Paul relating to the health, the growth, the membership of the church more comprehensively. So with that, turn with me in your Bibles to Ephesians chapter 4. Now, I wanted to go to Ephesians chapter 4 and just go, but I looked at that and I thought, okay, that's too much text. We'll be, <laughs> that's a lot. So I'm going to ground us in Corinth and then I'm going to covertly take us to to Ephesians, which is where I really wanted to go anyway, so I had like a hidden agenda. You guys fell for it. An expositional bait and switch worked. Ephesians chapter 4, verses 1 through 7 is all about unity. And so first, Paul emphasizes the Spirit has united us. Sound familiar? That's exactly what he said in 1 Corinthians. But he says it more, maybe more eloquently here because it's more in-depth. Look at verse 1. I, a prisoner of the Lord, I implore you to walk in a manner worthy of the calling with which you have been called, with all humility, gentleness, patience, oh, fruit of the Spirit, showing tolerance for one another in love, being diligent to preserve the unity of the Spirit in the bond of peace. Isn't that remarkable? Strive for unity in the bond of peace. That's remarkable. That's counseling right now. You know what a sermon is? I didn't say this last week, did I? And it was in my notes, and I didn't say it because I get so zealous up here. But anyway, I'll say it now. A sermon is what? A sermon is counseling concentrated. We could say it is concentrate counseling. 
because it is refined thought. I rack my brain on getting these truths right. You see what I'm saying? So a lot of Christians, they always need counseling, right? You need ministry, which is fine. It's great. But I would say really tune into the sermons because the sermons supposed to be where the pastor is at his best. Not that he's not a good counselor, but here, you know, we have refined thoughts about Scripture and biblical truth and and, and, and therefore, brothers and sisters, when it says the unity of the bond of peace, what it's saying is this. When you strive for unity, strive for unity not so much in trying to prove your point, not so much in trying to be right, not so much in trying to be vindicated, not so much in looking good. No, 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 no. Not so much in trying to resolve every last little quarrel in the church. No. It's the bond of peace. Strive for peace. How can I do this in a peaceful way? There's one body, one spirit, just as also you were called in one hope of your calling. There's one Lord, one faith, one baptism, one God and Father who is over all and through all and in all. But to each one of us, grace has been given according to the measure of Christ's gift. See why it's such a close parallel? Because even to the level of spiritual giftedness, uh, Paul is going to hear in Ephesians. Of course, this only vindicates what Paul says elsewhere. Turn to Philippians. I'm going to go back to, you're going to go from chapter 4 of Philippians to chapter, two of Philipp, uh, of chapter 4 of Ephesians, chapter 2 of Philippians, and then you're going to go back to chapter 4 of Ephesians. You got that? Because <laughs> I don't know if I got that. <laughs> but that's where we're going. Boom, boom, boom. Philippians chapter 2, this is exactly what the Spirit does in the membership of the church. When biblical membership is forged by the Spirit and people are walking in the bond of peace, this is what it looks like. You know this text. You could probably quote it. Philippians chapter 2, verse 1, Therefore, if there is any encouragement in Christ, that's what a biblical, sound, healthy church does. It looks for areas of agreement. It seeks that out. Woe to the Christian that is always looking for areas of disagreement. Always a contrarian. Always have to have a negative influence, a negative thought. Always sort of spoiling the men's group, ladies' group, home fellowship. You know what I'm talking about. It happens. It be, but that's just not in step with the Spirit. The Spirit is most glorified when we seek encouragement in Christ, consolation of love, fellowship of the Spirit, affection, compassion. Then you will please your pastors. Verse 2, make my joy complete. By being of the same mind, maintaining the same love, united in spirit, intent on one purpose. It's the only way the membership of the church will be functioning the right way, full tilt. Verse 3, do nothing. Here's the negative. So the positive is, look for this. The negative, verse 3, do nothing. Circle that word. Nothing from selfishness or empty conceit. Wow, guys. Wow, you guys. Oh, we, at this point we say, Lord, 
Help me to be more like you, Jesus. Because this is Jesus right here. Always coming to his disciples. You know, this is so remarkable about reading the Gospels as you see Jesus interacting with his disciples and he always has their interest in mind. He's always doing things to the benefit of their souls. He's always doing, giving them little parables so that they will learn, so that they will understand, so they will be caught up to speed. His concern is always for them, always teaching them, always ministering to them, always pouring himself out for them, always praying for them, and eventually dying for them. That's the gospel. Do nothing from selfishness or empty conceit if you want to be like Jesus. But with humility of mind, regard one another as more important than yourselves. Oh, man, this is, this is tectonic. This is nuclear strength fellowship. Do not merely look out for your own personal interests, but also for the interests of others. Have this attitude in yourself, which is incredible. What does that look like? Well, it looks like this. When you're having a miserable week, right? you're having a bad week, don't be so self-absorbed. Okay? I, I think Christians, we're like professionals at pity parties. You know? Don't be so self When you're having a hard week, if you want to think like the gospel, think like Christ, you should say and go, boy, if the members of my church are suffering like me, I need to be praying for them because this is miserable. When your joy is gone, when depression is high, joy is low, when gloom is up, hope is down, that's a sad place to be. So when you're in that, when you're in that sick bed, when you're in the throes of depression, when you're, you, when you're in that, that place where it's just dark, it's isolated, you're discouraged, condemned, depressed, that's when you should go further down to your knees and say, oh God, I need to pray for my fellow members because if this is the nature of the battle, this is tough. Go back to Ephesians chapter 4. All of this is for the growth of the church. Beginning in verse 11, the Apostle Paul tells us, apostles, prophets, evangelists, pastors, teachers, this is to equip the body so that they will serve, so that they will build up the body of Christ with an eschatological view. This is why we never back off. This is why we can never take our foot off the gas because the goal is not next year. The goal is not 10 years. The goal is not 25 years from now when we're all old. The goal is the eschaton. He says, until we attain to the unity of the faith and of the knowledge of the Son of God to a mature man, to the measure of the stature which belongs to the fullness of Christ. You having problems with church? Man, so much there, right, guys? Connecting in the church, getting along in the church, right? Uh, feeling meaningful in the church, being excited about the church. Take that verse right there, brothers and sisters. Get a good commentary, like MacArthur's commentary. MacArthur will be gold on this. Just take that verse right there and just stay there until you come out and you'll be like, okay, I think I understood. Because that's one long Greek sentence for Paul. He just literally just, you know, divulged it all right there the fullness of Christ. As a result, 
There's a blessing here too, members of the church. There's a blessing. We're no longer to be children. In what way? Can the Bible tell you to be like a child? Well, not in this sense. Tossed here and there by waves. Carried about. Oh boy, the waves. Carried about. By every wind of doctrine. By the trickery of men. By craftiness and deceitful scheming. In other words, the church is a haven. The church is, a, is, a, is like a, a safety. It's a shelter. It's a canopy. And we are to shelter inside and be safe. What's the implication? Outside is danger. Danger everywhere. Lurking everywhere. And when the church is healthy, the doctrine is healthy. The souls are healthy. The discernment is healthy. And when that's going on, man, I tell you what, you can pick up on the trickery, the craftiness, the deceitful scheming of false teachers, false doctrine, false movements, everything. You know, fellow employees that are trying to sway you one way or another, family members They are trying to give you the counsel of the ungodly. The biblical church does its job. Your discernment goes up and your strength is fortified. That's what happens. But speaking the truth in love, here's the admonition. We go from the the goal of it all, right? The, 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 The reality of it all, the equipping of the saints, the blessing, and then there's an admonition here. Speak the truth in love. It actually is a participial phrase, which means speaking the truth in love. In other words, while you speak the truth in love to one another, we're to grow up. It's like somebody needs to write that book for the church. Grow up <laughs> into all aspects into Him who is the head, even Christ. This is why you've got to keep pushing. This is why you've got to keep going. This is why you've got to keep working out your salvation in fear and trembling because it's all aspects, (laughs) right? Just when you think you got this Christian stuff down, you recognize, I don't know, in this area this week, (laughs) I didn't do so good. Could be an attitude, could be a vice, could be a relationship, could be a conversation, it could be a thought, could be anything you realize we'll never master it we're always just we're always just participially growing (laughs) meaning you're in the act you're always continually in the act of doing it i love it for whom the whole body being fitted together and held together by what every joint supplies whoa what a verse on membership no wonder we do this in our membership classes, what every joint supplies. And I've jumped up and down on this verse time and time again to emphasize exactly what Paul is emphasizing in Corinthians. Every member matters. Because here, Paul is envisioning the, it's almost like Paul is envisioning the body with x-ray vision, getting down to the, to the ligament level, to the joints the internal working of the body, every part of the body down to the ligaments, every joint supplies something according to the proper working of each individual part. That's twofold. That's 
pastoral and that's also individual. In other words, the proper working of each individual part, that requires oversight, pastoral ministry, counseling, shepherding, encouraging, admonishing, rebuking, correcting, and teaching. And then, in order for every part to function rightly, to work the proper working, you need to be listening, obeying, participating, functioning properly on your own. That's the way that it works. It's an over-under relationship. And what does that do? It does what I have seen for years and years and years. I mean, Cassie Matthews is here. Sorry, Cassie. <laughs> know how much you love that right there. And I remember when Cassie came to my first church with Chris Matthews, just young. I think uh, Brooklyn was a baby, like an infant, right? And um, now she's like taller than Cassie. Yikes. And I remember Cassie and Chris coming to our church, just young. Chris was hit over the head with so much doctrine, he looked like a deer in the headlights. And then that young man went on to become a pastor in our church. And I just saw the years of growth, the maturity, the zeal. I just saw him mature. Uh, you know, when he got to us, he didn't know any of the concepts. And then he went through a year where he was getting the concepts wrong. And then he went through a year where he started just being more quiet and more listening and just taking it in. And next thing you know, he's teaching all the concepts to everybody. Praise God. That's what I'm talking about. That is the growth of the body. That is the building up of itself and love. And Cassie did the same thing. Let another man praise you, sister. Teaching women, discipling women, pouring into women. When, when she got there, she needed all the women to pour into her. Amen? Amen. That's the way discipleship works. There is a truth to a popular notion. Everyone should be discipling someone. I like that. That's true. So the question to you is, who are you discipling? Your wife, your children, your spouse, one another, younger people in the church, the young men in the church, the young ladies in the church, even outside of the church as the Lord gives you opportunity with co-workers, family, and friends, people that you know, training them up. I was so uh, blessed to meet, and I hadn't talked to this friend in so long, and Trish and I were in California. We met, went to Starbucks. We met up at 8 o'clock in the evening, and we left Starbucks about 2 a.m. <laughs> no joking. <laughs> uh, uh, you know, obviously, uh, everyone was gone by that time. <laughs> but it was marvelous to meet with this brother that is so brilliant, so smart, and trying to figure out all this theology, and I was just so blessed to be able to sit there and just sort of provide guidance and light, just areas he hasn't been, things he hadn't studied, things he hadn't thought about, and that's what you're to do with people around you. And so receive from those that know more, more than you, that have been walking longer than you, that are more mature than you. It's not just theologically. It's not just doctrinally. It's also spiritually. Just because you're the smartest person in the church, that does not mean you are the most mature. Be careful of that trap. Matter of fact, that's dangerous. If you are the smartest you know, I used to preach at a sermon, uh, preach at a church with a lot of seminary students. And so I used to preach at a church just like this at Sovereign Joy, and guys would be sitting there, and they got their Greek and Hebrew Bibles open, and they're just following me along. I mean, you try to preach in front of that, you know, and a little intimidating, you know. But these guys were so smart, and some of them were so immature. Just because you are a whiz theologically, that does not mean that you are excelling 
spiritually. Excelling spiritually only looks like Christ-likeness. That's it. That's when you can say you've really grown spiritually is the more and more you are conformed to Christ. One last point, because I can spend all day on this. Turn with me in your Bibles to 2 Corinthians chapter 5. I'm going to read the last phrase of this passage we're on, because there Paul makes a parenthetical statement about Jews, Greeks, slaves, and free. And so the point I would like to emphasize is that the membership of the church consists of this. It consists of a Christ-centered metaphor of the body, a spirit-wrought unity of the body, and here we go, a unique diversity of the body. This is going to do two things. Number one, I'm going to bring this up to us today, and then this is going to prepare the way to launch us into Lord willing next week when we talk about the one another's of Scripture as to say that we are a diverse body in many ways. It's not new. This is not new for us. It was in Paul's day. There were Jews, there were Greeks, there were slaves, and there were free. Yes, slaves, because in the Roman Empire, it was a slavery-driven economy. That's the way it was. That's why the New Testament is not written in order to liberate slaves. You ever wonder why? There was so much slavery around in the Roman Empire. Why isn't a chapter of the book devoted to freeing slaves? Because... It's the, it's the way the empire is at the time. It's not, that would take the Bible in a whole different direction, socially speaking. And it just, not that it doesn't, and uh, what's the book? Philemon, Paul tells Onesimus, if you can be freed from being a slave, rather do that. Pursue that instead, of course. But that's not the mission of the church, was to overturn the Roman Empire's position on slavery. That, was, that would detract from the mission of the church. There's something even more important than that. But here we simply get two things. We get, we get a reference to, to the ethnicity of the church and to the social status of the church. What do we mean by that? Ethnicity, Jews, Gentiles, Jews and Greeks. Well, we have maybe a couple Jews here, a sister back there, <laughs> right? But really, it's mul- multiplicity of ethnicities. That's one thing, and that's true, and that's great, and that. That is a blessing when that's there. But also the social class of the church, the diversity of classes. And I think this is even more pertinent to our church and to a biblical church today. We have people on all kinds of different levels, all kinds of different backgrounds. Uh, You know, if you guys understood the background that I grew up with, you you know, what me and Wally have in common? (laughs) Nothing. You know what I'm saying? Like, I wouldn't be caught dead with Wally, and Wally wouldn't be caught dead with me. But now at UNT, you can't separate us. And that's the way it should be. And that's because something deeper is at work. Are you at 2 Corinthians chapter 5? 2 Corinthians chapter 5. Oh, I love this verse. I used this verse years ago. Oh, I was just a young convert, 20 years old. And this verse landed on me. The day that I had to go to my best friend's funeral, Philip, went to Las Vegas to bar- party for his 21st birthday. On the way home, fell asleep with two other of my friends going 100 miles an hour. Car flipped over, engine crushed Philip to death, and I went to his funeral. It was the first time I'd ever been back to the old, you know, the old crowd of people I used to roll with, and I went to his 
uh, I went to his, uh, uh, his party afterwards, a party afterwards, of course, and I remember this passage here, that it prepared me for that, because it was the first time I ever kind of ever went back to my old friends and my old uh, environment and whatnot, and that was uh, really hard, you know, because I don't got time to get into that, but it was just a lot of temptation everywhere, and, and uh, you know, they were trying to seduce me back into the old life, and I remember this passage here, therefore, from now on, we recognize no one according to the flesh. Even though we have known Christ according to the flesh, yet now we know Him in this way no longer, which means we no longer operate upon a carnal assessment of anyone. We don't look at anyone anymore on the carnal level, even though we looked at Christ that way even. We even looked at Christ as a mere man in terms of carnal categories, carnal uh, ways of thought, whatever you want to call it. So now we don't look at race, we don't look at class, we don't look at income, we don't look at you know, those types of things. That's not what matters. What matters is that you are in the Spirit. That's what matters. And therefore, this ought to impact the way that we relate to one another in the church. Real quick, I don't have any time to do this, but I'm going to do this anyway, which is what I wrote in my notes here, theology of cliques theology of cliques. If we are to relate to no one according to the flesh any longer, what about the cliques that form in the church? What about that? Well, there's two things uh, to say about that. Number one, because there's, there's degrees to this, I think that in a sense you want to call it cliques or whatever. To some degree, that's unavoidable. Let me give you an example. The doctrinally minded are going to want to hang out with the doctrinally minded. The evangelistically minded are going to want to hang out with the evangelistically minded. The practically minded are going to want to hang out with those that like to serve and be practical about things. The musically minded are going to want to hang out with other musicians in the church. And yes, to some degree, age matters. Sometimes, you know, if you're in your 60s and 70s, probably your best friends in the church are not 18, okay? That's okay. There's no condemnation. <laughs> But, 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 what the Spirit does in removing these sort of superficial, surface-level, carnal distinctions in the church, and yet it, we retain the diversity, the rich diversity, you know that what our church has, I could boast about at pastoral conferences, because we have black, white, brown, you know, whatever the colors, you know, we have you know, all kinds of people in different backgrounds and ethnicities. You know that in some churches, it just doesn't work that way. <laughs> you got all your white people, they all file into the white church. You got all your black people, they all file into the black church. You got all your Hispanic people, they all file into the, the Latin church or whatever. You got the, all the Asians, they all file into the Asian church. I hate that. Now, I, I hate it because the only reason we should segregate like that should be because of genuine, maybe language barriers. You go to the Korean church because you don't speak anything other than Korean. Okay, I, that I understand. But if we're segregating merely on the basis of the color of our skin, we have missed the new covenant. 
We have missed the boat. Jews, Gentiles. What's Paul say? Uh, Galatians chapter 3, verse 28. There is now no distinction between male, female, Jew, Gentile, Scythian, barbarian, bond, slave, free, whatever. It's all those distinctions have been obliterated by the Spirit of God. And when we don't live in that, we just fail to reflect the heavenly church. Revelation chapter 5, verses 9 through 11. Every tribe, every tongue, every nation will be glorifying God. We will be surrounding the throne, all the throng of ethnicities around the throne of God for all eternity. Say, holy, holy, holy. You think you're going to care what color you are? (laughs) I don't. I think you're going to care about only one thing, His glory. And when the glory of God dominates a church, you can see it. <laughs> you can see it because all these superficial distinctions just fall away. Amen? Father, no one can do what only you can do. No one can strip away all of these superficial distinctions among us and unite us. What does a gang member have in common with a businessman (laughs) what does a rich person have in common with a poor person and on and on the paradoxical connections we can make that is truly lord a work of your spirit and so we pray oh god in the same vein of thought in the same way that you united us would you sanctify us would you grow us mature us so that we will never fall into the trap of being truly cliquish, truly factional in our church, but that we would no longer recognize anyone according to the flesh. In Jesus' name, amen. Amen.